subtitle, A Supernatural Principle of Holiness. We have spent two messages in a consideration of this subject, and we come now to part three, which will bring to a conclusion of sanctification as a, a supernatural work of the Spirit of God, wherein we are given a supernatural principle of holiness. In Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning with verse 25, we read, And I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments, and do them. Now, the most careless reading of those verses would reveal that whatever here takes place is a work of God upon and within and on the behalf of the sinner. This is God saying, I will cleanse you from your filthiness and idols. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will enable you to keep my judgments and to do them. And so by this is the implication, by this very language is the implication that this is not the condition of man by nature, that man by nature is averse to the will of God, and is contrary to the law of God, and does not have a habit of holiness, nor a heart wherein he can obey God well-pleasing unto him. In Psalm 119, again there the psalmist points out practically the same thing by way of request and prayer. He says in verse 35 and verse 36, Make me to go in the path of thy commandments. In other words, this is not something that I will do naturally. But by nature, my heart is against God. By nature, I don't like God's law over me. So the prayer of the believer is, Make me to go in the paths of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. In considering this subject of holiness, we noted first of all that this principle of holiness this new nature that we receive from God is the result of the regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit, 
wherein we are born into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, and so we become new creations and partakers of the divine nature wherein the image of God is restored in us so that there is now a new disposition and principle toward obedience to God and acts of holiness. Now, I emphasized, and will continue to do so, that this holiness, this evangelical holiness, this biblical sanctification does not consist in any single acts of obedience to God. If that were so, even prior to his conversion, the Apostle Paul could have declared himself a holy man. For as far as the law was concerned, outwardly, he was judged to be righteous. He was filled with good deeds and good works. The same could be said of the Pharisees who went far beyond that which God requires of his people in sacrifice and in obedience. So it is not doing holy things that makes you holy. But make the tree good, and then the fruit will be good. There must be, first of all, a righteous principle of holiness in regeneration, infused into the believer before there can be holy activities acceptable unto God. Then further we noted that this principle of holiness is the same in every single believer in its kind or nature. It is the Spirit of God born of the Spirit of God. It is putting on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of God. But though it is of the same kind, this does not mean that the principle of holiness is the same in degree of liveliness and activity in all believers. For in some, the principle operates more strongly than in others and is weaker in some than in others which leads to inactivity in the things of God. But this being a habit that we are brought into, a general tenor of life that we are directed into, and not being acquired by acts of duty and obedience, nevertheless becomes strengthened and increases in the deliberate and willful exercise of duty and obedience unto the Lord. Therefore, the child of God is to be extremely careful that he exercises himself in the law of God in obedience unto the Lord. Now, there's a great misconception that has grown up 
in our own day out of fundamentalism that needs a strong correction. And that is the distinction between Christians as being spiritual and non-spiritual. Oh, you've heard it said because a person can speak pious platitudes or he holds himself in a certain stance as he talks to you, uses a certain tone of voice, or carries his Bible high on his shoulder so you can't miss seeing it when he walks by, that he is a spiritual man. These are persons who generally brag to you and let you know that they're spiritual because of their own experience which supersedes yours. Now, this distinction is not made in the Bible. The Bible makes a distinction between the carnal and the spiritual. The Bible says to be carnally minded is death. Therefore, every person who is carnal is dead. Now, though a child of God may act carnally through division and schism in his own life, he cannot be a carnal Christian. There is no such thing. Now, to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded, Paul tells us in Romans 8, is life. And it is the life of God. So every child of God, no matter how weak or strong the principle of holiness and grace is, is a spiritual being. Just being spiritual doesn't mean that a person is holy. For example, have you ever considered that the devil himself is pure spirit? And so if you want to talk about something being spiritual, then Satan is purely spiritual. But he's wicked, and he's non-pleasing to God. He's under the judgment of God, and he's going to be destroyed by God. So this is a wrong distinction. Now, those who are spiritual are to be exercised not in what the world calls, quote, spirituality that engenders religious pride, but righteousness and godliness. In other words, one may be more godly than another, and one may be more righteous than another in the exercise of this spiritual principle of life that is received in the new birth. Now, righteousness pertains to right doing in obedience to the law of God toward our fellow men and ourselves, and godliness is obedience toward God and that which he requires of us in relationship to him. So what we strive for is not a higher spiritual plane, but more righteousness and more godliness as spiritual beings, and this comes through the exercise of this spiritual principle in obedience to the will and the law of the Lord God Almighty. With that then, let us come to note the third section of this discussion of sanctification as a supernatural principle of holiness 
that is implanted by the Spirit of God in regeneration, that the supernatural principle of holiness enables us to live unto God in all holy obedience. It is not something that enables us to have ecstatic feelings and charismatic experiences and to grow in spiritual pride because we have certain experiences that other Christians do not have. But it is a principle that enables us to live unto God in holy obedience. And one's sanctification, one's godliness, one's holiness, one's righteousness is to be measured in terms of his obedience. And that obedience resulting from a new principle of life in regeneration. Now, to emphasize that holiness must be produced from a principal root, that is, the tree must be made good before the fruit can be made good, let me simply point out that we are not, by the teaching of the Bible, we are not sinners because we have sinned. Now that you will agree to, that we sin because by nature we're sinners. We are born with original sin. We are born with a sinful, corrupted nature, and under the wrath of God with sin's guilt upon us. Now it is because the tree is bad that we produce sinful fruit and sinful effects. This is seen very clearly in a small infant or a newborn babe. You do not have to teach a newborn babe to tell a lie. They'll tell lies through their deceptions and cryings and selfish bidding for your attention. You don't have to teach a small child to destroy another man's property. He'll do it by nature. You don't have to teach him to scheme for his own well-being. He'll do it by nature. You don't have to teach him not to soil himself. He'll do it by nature. So the first part of his training is totally negative. Don't touch that. You'll get hurt. Learn to use the potty properly. And this takes a while of training. Don't use those kind of words. They are not befitting to society and are condemned by God. Respect that over there and don't touch it. It does not belong to you. It belongs to another. So you have to teach man what is right. What is right. Because by nature he is a sinner. When it comes to holiness, the same is true. We do not become holy by doing holy things. We perform holy activities in obedience to God because we have already been made holy by the Spirit of God infused 
Bring into us by His supernatural grace a principle of holiness. The tree has been made good. Well, let's look at two or three things in the time that remains. And I've said that this holiness enables us to live unto God in all holy obedience. Now, let's note then, first of all, the fact of this power. The fact of this power, of this principle of holiness enabling us to all obedience unto God. There is, in and by the grace of regeneration and sanctification, a power and an ability given unto us by the living God for performing all the duties of acceptable obedience. By nature, we do not have any such power for any such spiritual good. By nature, even our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. And so, no matter what we produce, in a state of nature, it is not spiritually good and so not accepted by God. We are under the power of sin. And so everything we do is motivated by sinful principle, even if it is well-doing as judged by the society in which we live. Therefore, the Apostle Paul writes, in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Has a total inability to be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. But in contrast to this, there is a power in all the sanctified, and that embraces all who have been regenerated by the Spirit and brought to faith in Jesus Christ whereby they are able to yield all holy obedience unto God. This is a principle of spiritual life that is an active power of a new life that finds its fullness in its obedience unto the Lord. This is brought out, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3. There's so many scriptures that could be shared on all these statements. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, that God would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. And he goes on to show that it, this might result in comprehending 
and obeying God. Also in the book of Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 11, that we are strengthened with all might according to his glorious power and all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, therefore bearing the fruit of the Spirit, which is the conduct of holiness. Then in the second place, not only the fact of this power, not only the reality that a child of God has a principle that is empowered and strengthened by God that enables him to obedience to God over against and in contrast with the powerlessness or impotency of the unbeliever, let's note the nature of this spiritual power. What is it? And wherein and does it consist? Now, we cannot understand this sanctifying power that the child of God has as a principle of holiness unless there is a consideration and understanding of that impotency or lack of power under all spiritual good which is in us by nature. The Bible says of man by nature that he is dead in trespasses and in sins. This means that he is dead to God. He is dead to true biblical holiness. He is alive unto sin and rebellion. Therefore, there must come about a supernatural change by the Spirit of God, which we call the new birth, wherein we are brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ, and on the grounds of his death and burial and resurrection, before we are cured of this inability and are strengthened to please God in our services or obedience. Now, there are three major faculties in our soul which are subject either to this power of God in holiness or to this impotency in spiritual things. Our spiritual inability to do anything well-pleasing to God, to be acceptable unto the Lord, to deliver ourselves from his wrath, naturally arises from the depravity and ruin of all these faculties. Now, these faculties are the mind, the will, and the affections. Therefore, the Bible says of the sinner that he has a darkened understanding. No matter how much truth is there, he does not have any light 
that shines so he can see it. That is, to see it in the right way. As a result, his affections being governed by his understanding are all twisted up so that he loves what God forbids and hates what God commands. The will, not being the dominating faculty of the soul, is in bondage to the mind and the affections. And so we can choose only according to one's understanding or emotional involvement. Therefore, there must be a renewal of all these faculties so that this supernatural principle enables these faculties to properly function in their God-given place in obedience to God in His law and in holy activity. Let's look at the mind. The mind is far, far, far too much neglected in our Christian faith today. And there is far, far, far too much emphasis on emotion and feeling and experience and activity. Too much. Absolutely too much. One of the reasons Calvinism does not appeal to certain groups of people is because Calvinism requires using the mind. And God requires using the mind. No man's ever been saved who hasn't been saved by that salvation commencing with his understanding. People don't want to understand. They want to feel. They want to have an experience. And then it becomes man-centered, and they can boast and brag in it rather than having an understanding of God-centeredness. Now, the power that is in the mind is a spiritual light and an ability to understand spiritual things in a spiritual manner. That leads to obedience. We cannot obey God if we don't know what God requires of us, can we? And we cannot obey God unless the understanding is enlightened on those truths that we see that this is the way we should walk in. Therefore, if you will study the subject of the mind and of the understanding, you will discover that this is where sanctification has its commencement and not in the emotions and the feelings. For example, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Beginning with verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know, not feel, that we might know, not have an ecstatic experience over, 
that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, that is, the things of the Word of God with the things of the Word of God. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. It doesn't surprise me when people come and hear me preach and say, I don't understand that preacher. What he preaches sounds ridiculous or foolish. But it's a sad commentary on them if they don't understand it. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned or dissected so that we might understand but he that is spiritual, that is, who is regenerated, born of the Spirit, judges all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There the emphasis is upon what we know, the renewal and illumination of the mind as contrasted to a darkened understanding. In Romans chapter 12, for example, where the apostle is speaking of sanctification, note how he says, with reference to offering up our bodies as living sacrifices acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In verse 2 he says, And be not conformed to this world. And how is it that a child of God in his sanctification is not going to be conformed to the dictates and to the principles of this world? But be ye transformed By getting the baptism of the Spirit and speaking in tongues and shouting a while and running around the church building and then going out bragging about what a great religious experience you had on Sunday. He says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the only place you can prove the perfect will of God is through a right kind of mind, the sanctified mind. John Owen said, This is the most imminent act of our sanctification. We cannot know the will of God to do it apart from this illumination of the mind. Wherefore, all sanctified believers have an ability and power in the renewed mind and understanding to see, know, discern, and receive spiritual things, the mysteries of the gospel, the mind of Christ, in a due and spiritual manner. Now, before we close, because the Lord willing, next time we will take up the sanctification of the will and of the affections in this ability and power given to the sanctified for doing God's will. I want you to look at three scriptures. First of all, Colossians 
Colossians chapter 3. And I hope this will show you the importance of biblical doctrine. How important it is what you hear and what you learn and what you come to know because not only is your salvation dependent upon a right knowledge of the true gospel of the substitutionary work of Christ, but your sanctification upon a renewed mind that has a right understanding of the will of God as revealed in his word. Now in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, the apostle says, and have put on the new man. That's when you were renewed by the Spirit of God. You became a new man. The old man was put away. And have put on the new man. And what is putting on the new man? Which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. People who speak down doctrinal preaching and say, oh, don't give us doctrine but experience. Don't give us that which is intellectual that we must think about, but that which we can feel, don't know a dime's worth about the Bible. Even your regeneration, Paul says, begins in putting on the new man, and the new man is renewed in understanding and knowledge after the image of God that created him, so that you can understand that you were a sinner, so that you can understand how God saves sinners, so that you can understand the law of God and what the will of God is. Look at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, that great chapter of sanctification and spiritual warfare that Paul talks about. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 25, after having said in verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, for there's another law always warring against me, saying, but you ought to go out and live it up. You ought to forget about the law of God. You ought to go do this evil and that evil. Let yourself have freedom. He cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he gives the answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And how has he done that? Look at verse the next part of the verse. How did he do that? How does the Lord Jesus Christ deliver us from the power of sin? From sin's dominion over us. From its ability to dictate to us our way of life. So then with the mind, myself, Serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the rule of sin. With this mind, this renewed understanding, this illuminated understanding, this new principle of holiness that has its commencement in the mind being changed. For what is repentance but a changing of the mind? I serve the law of God. And then Philippians. Let us therefore, and here Paul is talking about sanctification, 
avoiding, on the one hand, legalism, on the other, licentiousness. Reaching toward that objective that God has set for us. Pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling in God through Jesus Christ. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect or complete or mature, be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, that is, in this progressive growth in sanctification, in this holiness, in this being conformed to the image of Christ, let us walk by the same rule. And how are we going to walk by the same rule, making progress? Let us mind the same thing. Then in verse 19, he speaks of those who are the enemies of the cross, who are contrary to the mind of Christ, and he says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Who mind earthly things. Therefore, we can say that a person's mind, a person's thoughts, a person's understanding will govern his will and his affections and reveal whether he is spiritual or whether he is carnal, whether he is a child of God or whether he is a child of the wicked one. This is why the Apostle admonished us, let us grow progressive sanctification, holiness, let us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. My dear friends, there can be no holiness. There can be no progressive sanctification worked out in holiness. There can be no growing progressively in the experience of sanctification apart from the operation of the supernatural principle of holiness within the mind implanted by the spirit of illumination. Let us mind the things of Christ. Let us have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus. Are the things of God foolishness to you? Do you mind earthly things or do you have a taste for the things of God? A relish for the things of God? Can you see the reasonableness of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world as the God-man and going to the cross and dying there under the guilt of our sin that God might be a holy God while he forgives you and me who are sinned? The beauty of the power of his resurrection because the sin debt had been paid in full. If God has given to you a new mind, you will also have a new heart and will, new affection. You love the things of God. No longer a, so, a supposedly neutral will, but a will that's determinately set in choosing the things of God. Oh, may the Spirit of God work this sanctification 
in the hearts of you who have come to know Christ as your Savior, and you who are yet in your sins, that you might be brought to see Christ as your Lord and Savior, and yourself as a helpless, hopeless, impotent sinner, who by your own resolutions and civility, religion, and activities can never please the holy God of heaven. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we pray that thy sick will bless this message to our understandings. Help us to grasp something of the importance and of the glory of it. May it be used to edify thy people and to strengthen them, to make us a people who manifest thy life in us and bring sinners to see their need of Christ, in whose name we pray.